From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Twenty twenty has reshaped the way the entire federal government does business. The main reason for that is the coronavirus, but it's not the only reason. In this special edition, a look at three of the most important stories in the defense community in 2020. The first, obviously, is the coronavirus. Its impact on the military has been huge. The Navy ship Theodore Roosevelt was one of the first widespread cases of the virus to hit the military. Military medical personnel deployed to New York, Los Angeles, and other locations around the country to support treatment efforts. President Trump selected the commander of U.S. Army Materiel Command, General Gus Perna, to become chief operating officer of Operation Warp Speed, the effort to create and distribute a vaccine. Meanwhile, the business of the military had to continue. In August, General James McConville, the chief of staff of the Army, told Government Matters how the Army was responding to the virus both internally and externally. One of uh, our top priorities in the Army is, is really protecting our people uh, during this virus so we can protect uh, the nation. So we've taken measures, uh, whether it's taking a slight pause in bringing young men and women in, uh, into the Army uh, over a two-week period, uh, but more intensively is is um, how we're contributing to the uh, the, the interagency or whole of government response. Um, we have uh, scientists who are working on vaccinations, who are working on high throughput uh, testing. Uh, they're working on drugs that we can use to uh, uh, cure the virus, and that's at our uh, medical research and development uh, command. Our core of engineers are in every single state, working very closely with state and local officials. And so they can help them develop these alternate healthcare facilities like you're seeing in Javits uh, uh, Center in New York City, you're seeing that in Seattle, and you're really seeing that around the country. Our National Guard, the Army National Guard is, is, is 20,000 plus strong. They're in every single state um, helping uh, the state respond uh, to this invisible enemy. And, and then our reserves um, have been mobilized. Uh, we have a, a lot of capability in our reserves as far as field hospitals and active and we are employing 19 field hospitals throughout the country right now. What can the Army learn and what can other health care providers learn from those hospital deployments, sir? Well, first of all, speed matters. Um, we, we were given an order uh, for the hospital uh, in New York City. Uh, and in, in, in five days uh, after orders, uh, they were in New York City. They were setting up that hospital. Uh, the interagency coordination is actually, actually important. And also looking for alternate means to set up the hospitals quickly. If we had to build them from scratch, it would have taken maybe months or, or even years. But the fact that our engineers were able to work with uh, state and local officials and go into um, existing facilities, they were quickly able to adapt them into the hospitals we're seeing today. As far as staffing those facilities, you've asked retired soldiers to come back to service at least temporarily. What skills do you need to fill those billets, sir? Yeah, what we're looking for is really medical professionals. We've had a very positive response to uh, former soldiers who want to come back and, and serve their countries. But, but really, at the, at the end of the day, when we talk to the states, uh, they need medical professionals. And we've been very careful uh, when we've mobilized our reserves and National Guard um, almost to the, to the person because we don't want to pull someone out of a community hospital and put them in, and deploy them from their hometowns if they're actively involved in fighting the virus. 
Anytime that you or any of your colleagues and I have talked about the Army and its mission, I always hear the phrase, we have to be ready to fight tonight. That doesn't change as a result of coronavirus. How has this impacted the way that you're preparing your soldiers to be able to fight tonight, sir? No, we, we have to, and that's a great point. You know, we have uh, about 190,000 soldiers uh, deployed in 140 countries uh, throughout the world, and, and they're actively engaged in, in combat operations in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, the Army must be ready. Um, and, and we are, and as Chief Staff of the Army, I, I can tell those who wish us harm or those who uh, threaten the security of the United States is uh, we are ready to defend the nation, and we will. How has this rearranged or reprioritized or stretched out or any, affected in any other way the big six modernization priorities that you've been working on pretty much since you became vice chief and now chief? Well, we're, we're still aggressively going at that, but just like we want to protect the force, we also want to protect, protect our industry partners. Uh, some um, high-profile testing we continued. We just had a very success, successful launch or uh, our hypersonic missile capability and very, very proud of, of the work they're doing. So what we're doing is we're, we're, we're taking a look at where um, kind of the hot zones are, and we're working very closely with our industry partners to protect them so we can continue to develop the modernization priorities, but at the same time, we want to protect the people that are working on them. You're obviously not going out and seeing the men and women in uniform that you command uh, during this time, but you're communicating with them, I'm sure, through the ways, uh, for example, the way we're communicating today. What's the message that you're sending to them as you're communicating with them now, General McConville? Well, I, I still think we are going out. Um, I was in New York City. I've been to Javis Center to visit the troops there. I've been out to uh, Washington State to visit the troops there. I think as leaders, uh, we have responsibility uh, to go uh, to places where our troops are going or I wouldn't send them. Uh, we are certainly putting the measures in place when we go to visit, all the proper measures as far as six, six feet separation and making sure that we uh, protect them and, and protect ourselves. But the message I would tell um, the, the, the Army or the troops, really the American people, we, I'm just really proud of them all. Uh, every single person has a share of, 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 a, of the task in defeating this virus. It could be from washing your hands. It could be from uh, proper social distancing, which I believe strongly in. You know, if you're not mission essential, stay home and shelter in place so you're not being, you're minimizing exposure. But really for all the professionals that, that we have, I, I think the real heroes of this fight, they're going to be the doctors, the nurses, the scientists, and the medical professionals that are on the front line um, to defeat this virus, and, and they will. Up next, Joint All Domain Command and Control took a big leap forward this year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the story of forces working together like never before and the path ahead for JADC2. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Technology is changing the character of warfare, according to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. The Defense Department's major push technologically is to get decision-making data and information to any shooter, any time. That effort is named Joint All-Domain Command and Control. It comes out of the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System. 
This year, the Army formalized its collaboration in JADC2 through a memorandum of understanding. Both Army Chief General James McConville and Air Force Chief General C.Q. Brown signed. Signs point to the Navy getting on board in 2021. In November, I asked former Secretary of the Air Force Deborah Lee James if starting that collaboration is as simple as a similar memorandum of understanding between the Air Force and the Navy. Well, nothing is ever quite that simple, Francis. So for, for one thing, I do think it would be important to get something in writing from the Chief of Naval Operations in collaboration with the Air Force and even with the Army. General Milley, of course, has designated this as a major effort and put the Air Force in charge of it. But the Pentagon is driven by paper, and so to have that MOU, I think, would help, particularly as you start working at lower levels and they start questioning, well, are my senior leaders really behind this effort or not? So that paper is important. And I think then if we get that and if the Navy is prepared to commit some time and some resources, that is when they can, in a more fulsome way, start participating in some of these on-ramp demonstration experimentation programs where the Army and the Air Force have been collaborating fairly well thus far. Each of the organizations, each of the branches has had its own effort in this area going for a while. And it, the, as you say, General Milley has decided advanced battle management system in the Air Force is going to be where all of these systems come together. What will that look like ultimately? What still is to happen between now and then uh, before we get to what General McConville talked about on this program a couple of weeks ago and, and others have said, you know, all shooters having access to all information? Right. Well, it is a big effort, and it's easier to talk about it than it is to actually demonstrate it and do it and make it work consistently. So the ABMS uh, program is, you think of it as a foundation. Every system needs a foundation upon which the rest will be built, and the ABMS system will be, in effect, a military internet of things which then presumably some of the technologies and the capabilities and the C2 systems that each of the military services have worked on for years can then be plugged into. But the key is, is that it has to all work together in a seamless way. And to get from here to there, you can't swallow the ocean all in one gulp. You have to do these demonstration programs and take it step by step. So that is currently what uh, the team is working on over at the Pentagon. I forgive you if you're biased toward the Air Force and the work that they've done on ABMS, but why is that the right place for, why is the Air Force the right place to be kind of overseeing this framework that the other services are coming into? Well, I would say, first of all, that command and control in general has been one of the core missions of the Air Force since the Air Force separated from the Army in the year 1947. So it's kind of in the DNA of the Air Force. It is what the Air Force has done for uh, many, many years. So that's point one. Point two is I give great credit to General Goldfein and subsequently to General Brown. So Goldfein originally had this vision. He, he proselytized. He was like an evangelist across the department, convincing others. And he put his money, our money, the Air Force money, where his mouth was to say, we will commit resources. We will commit the time and energy and leadership to make this happen. No one else had stepped up in such a way to build that foundation. And again, the foundation is step one. One of the things that is striking to me is you talked about General Goldfein, and you're right. He was an advocate for this when people thought this was a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's now coming to fruition, and it strikes me that because of the time that has been devoted to this, this is not something that's likely to disappear as a result of 
changes of administration. Cha obviously, it's not going anywhere as a result of changes in the chief of staff at the Air Force. This is something that for organizations, as you mentioned at the lower levels, that wonder, uh, is the command of this branch committed to this? Everybody's committed to this, it appears. I mean, I would certainly say so. That's correct. I don't think this is going to go away with a change of administration. I think this is here to stay because there is recognition that in the information age and in a complex world in which our potential adversaries have watched us operate for 25 years, they've largely got us figured out and they have developed ways to interfere with us across the military services as well as across all domains. So how do we counter that? And one of the ways that we think we can counter that is to harness the value of a common operating picture and this joint command and control uh, system, which would give us speed for decision-making. It would allow decision-makers to figure out how to attack an adversary, do it fast, and, and wreak confusion. So if the enemy doesn't know where you're coming from, and then boom, you hit them before they even know it's coming, that's a tremendous advantage. So I do think the system will be here to stay. We just have a couple of minutes left, Madam Secretary. I spoke to a Navy leader not too long ago, and uh, unprovoked said what is your top priority regarding data and the exchange of information and he said to me JADC2 named it without me giving him any prompting does do you take heart in that that maybe some of the hesitations the Navy's had in the past might be going away finally well I, I do take heart in that and um, I think if you know Admiral Gilday was that clear about it then surely it won't be that difficult to get the MOU written and again not to be make that the be-all and end-all and I certainly believe Admiral Gilday's words but when you filter 10 levels down within the Navy not everybody gets the message so if there's a piece of paper to prove that Admiral Gilday is willing to go with this willing to commit resources willing to participate in these experimentations and very importantly willing to amend or change in some way the Navy's command and control system to compromise for the sake of the joint system <clears throat> that goes a long way up next, two more of the biggest stories in defense this year, straight ahead on Government Matters, a recap of some of the most important stories of an unprecedented year. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. As 2020 comes to a close, we're looking back at the biggest stories in defense in the entire year. I welcome Oriana Pollock, air warfare reporter for Military.com, and Sarah Sirota, associate editor for Inside the Air Force. They've made their choices for the most important stories of the year. Oriana, I begin with you. The first story you chose was diversity in the Air Force. A lot included in that throughout this year, hasn't there been? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've had the historic nomination and confirmation of General Charles Q. Brown, um, who is the first black service chief in the Air Force's history, and not just the Air Force's history, but the military's history overall. And, you know, that aside in this year alone, I mean, General Brown was one of the first members of the Air Force, along with some of his counterparts, to really lead the service in a really frank discussion about the uh, 
what had happened in Minneapolis with the death of George Floyd. And arguably, the service stepped out ahead of its counterparts when wanting to have airmen talk about how they felt about this, how this affected their service, and what it means to be a black airman in the Air Force. And not just that aside, but, you know, it was a huge leap in technology this year as well, uh, in addition to things like the discussion and also, you know, making tweaks and adjustments to, you know, the Air Force's song, like making gender neutral references instead of male only references. But the technological leap was really to create a diverse environment for women in the military. This year, we saw a huge leap in the technology of women's uniforms uh, to have more women be comfortable in the cockpit and the adjustments made for more women to wear body armor that fits them for the first time, and that's decades in the making. The importance of all of those changes that Oriana talks about, Sarah, I think manifested itself a couple of weeks ago when we learned the Air Force is actually going to be able to reduce the retention bonuses that it pays because it doesn't need to retain as many people. It actually has more airmen than it needs for the coming year. Is it fair to characterize that, do you think, Sarah, as a manifestation that these diversity initiatives are working because people want to stay in the force? Uh, I would say so. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't follow uh, the diversity issues as closely as Oriana does, uh, but it's definitely been fascinating to watch this year. And um, as she mentioned, uh, the nomination of General Brown has been significant. Uh, the Air Force is on its fourth uh, uh, female uh, secretary, um, and it's it's been really fascinating and amazing to watch. Oriana, a top enlisted person in the uh, Air Force is a diversity landmark as well, correct? Yes, absolutely. Chief Master Sergeant Bass is also the first female to hold the position. And again, it's one thing that happened ahead of the military's counterparts, uh, something that the Air Force chose to lead as an example to have the first black service chief as well as his counterpart be, be a female. So, you know, when they're going around to bases across the Air Force, these are the faces that you see. These are the airmen that, as former secretaries and chiefs have said, you you can't be what you can't see. And finally, you have people in these positions where they can be what they see. Sarah, you uh, chose the Advanced Battle Management System as your number one story of the year. And the ABMS is significant because it lays the groundwork for the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System that every uh, branch of the military is using. Why did you choose ABMS as number one? Uh, I think just in terms of how much it's supposed to revolutionize the technology of the military, the Air Force is really taking the lead on this advanced battle management system that uh, Dr. Will Roper has been leading. Um, as you said, it's intended to achieve joint all-domain all command and control, whereby military platforms uh, sort of serve as nodes on the shared network um, and are able to share data across this common uh, network seamlessly, um, and it would really change things up for the military. Um, they've been holding periodic demonstrations of this shared network uh, where they invite industry members, uh, different combatant commands, um, different uh, platforms in the military, and they demonstrate the shared network. And uh, a few months ago, they had what the Air Force called potentially the largest joint experiment or demonstration in recent history um, in, in partnership with Northern Command and, and scores of different industry teams um, and government teams. It's been really fascinating to watch this year, uh, especially the debates on Capitol Hill about the advanced battle management system. There's been some skepticism from lawmakers about the non-traditional way the Air Force is doing this program. 
uh, instead of sort of laying out basic requirements from the get-go like they would with your traditional programs, they are sort of taking a DevSecOps-like approach uh, to software development um, in the way that they handle this. Uh, the Government Accountability Office has been fairly skeptical that there would be unnecessary costs and schedule delays. Uh, but Dr. Roper um, and the Air Force uh, leadership has really been pushing ahead with this um, and championing, championing it. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been a huge story this year for me to follow. Given that this is so uh, closely attached to Dr. Roper's name and that he will not be in office January 20th at noon, is it reasonable to assume that the memorandum of understanding with General Brown and General McConville regarding the Army and statements the Navy has made recently that it is signing on to JADC2, is that enough for this to, to expect to continue into the Biden administration, Sarah? Yeah, so this is something I've spoken with some uh, industry partners about. Uh, they feel that this, the need for JADC2 and ABMS is so ingrained in the culture of the military that it will continue regardless of who replaces Dr. Roper if he leads in January and with the incoming Biden administration. Um, you know, the names that are floated around to take over the leadership of the Defense Department are people that uh, industry members and, and members of the Air Force who I speak to are very confident would continue with this mission. Um, so, so I think that it'll keep going forward uh, from what I can tell. Sarah Sirota, Oriana Pollock, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.